Good evening, church. How's everyone doing tonight? How's everyone doing tonight? It's wonderful to be with you all this evening. My name is Carter. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossbridge and happy to be in the room worshiping God, learning more about who God is and how he calls us to live on this Memorial Day weekend. And before we jump in and talk about the, the sermon and the topic this evening, I just want to uh, bring your attention to something. I was thinking as we were singing together and as the band was leading us in worship that God has been so gracious to our church. He continues to bring men and women with such uh, talent and gifting and uh, a spirit of generosity to give not only of treasure but to give of time and talent. And I just want to highlight that this evening we were led by uh, Daphne and Anthony. And Daphne leads our production team every single week back here behind the camera. But she's an incredible worship leader as well. And Anthony on keys who's been playing for us, leading worship these past two weeks. Can we thank them for leading us in worship? <laughs> Amazing. It's like we have, we have like a whole Rolodex of incredible worship leaders. And God has blessed our church uh, in so many other ways. And so many of you that serve in so many different capacities of this church. I just want to say thank you. Uh, this church is built upon its people. And that's how Christ has called us to live, to join together, to sharpen each other, and to build the church together. And so this evening on this beautiful Memorial Day weekend that looked like it was going to be rainy, but that's how it is in Miami. If you're new to Miami and it says rain on the forecast, you never know. It could be a sunny, beautiful weekend, so you just got to take the chance. And that's like always go to the beach, 80% chance of rain, that's 100% go to the beach. Because you never know, it could still be beautiful like it has been this weekend. And so I was thinking about what is like a nice, easy topic, Memorial Day, people are in town visiting, and you know, people are traveling out of town, sex. That's the topic this evening, is uh, sex and singleness. We've been in this series called Woven Stories where we're looking at all the different dynamics of relationships, friendships, marriages, dating romantic relationships, a relationship between a parent and a child. And instead of going kind of section by section, this week's about marriage, this week's about singleness, this week's about friendship, we decided to look at all these different components that affect the different relationships that we have. So we've looked at shame and empathy and knowing and loving yourself. We've looked into all these different types of aspects that affect our relationships that we can glean wisdom and truth from God's word and see God's vision for our life and our relationships. And so next up in the series was sex and singleness. And I was thinking about this. This sermon has to be, uh, to preach this sermon in a city like Miami has to be one of the hardest places in the world to preach this sermon. Because Miami and Vegas are like rivals for like what are they known by their sexuality. And in fact, if some of you know this, the very first sermon I ever preached at Crossbridge eight years ago was on sex. I didn't choose it though. I was being interviewed to come in and revitalize the church as a campus pastor. And I had to preach a sermon. And I'm told that the sermon I have to preach is on sex. Now, I want you to picture this. I know nobody in the church. And I know that the leaders are going to then interview me after the service. And I have to preach on sex. I was like, this church is savage. I mean, this is unbelievable. And so I went back on my notes to see what I preached and what I spoke about. And I'm just going to say this. I came in eight years ago like a tornado. Because here are the topics, okay. This is one sermon. 
sex, marriage, divorce, living together before marriage, Tinder, Freud, Mona Lisa, lust, and then Jesus. It was like, uh, you know, like the yogurt shops where you go in and you can get all the different, color, you know, flavors and toppings and mix it together. It was like one sermon with like a million sermon topics in one. So I just want to say, church, thank you for hiring me eight years ago. And I've been like, that was a wild sermon. How did you hit so many topics? So I thought tonight we're going to laser focus on two things, sex and singleness. Because Paul ties these together in the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 6 and chapter 7. He's tying together, and marriage is kind of infused in there as well. But he's connecting these things together. And so let's focus on that this evening instead of running off on other rabbit trails as well. So if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 6. If you don't have your Bible, it's okay. The passages will be on the screen. And if you have the app, you know that I provide notes on the notes icon there with all types of extra content for you. And if you want the app, you can just go to any app store, type in Crossbridge Brickle app, and download it for free. But I want to read the passage first, and then we'll dive into it, and we'll see what God's word says for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 20. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, a church a lot like Miami, and here's what he says. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you as you're reading like this is going to be a wild sermon. And we're going to dissect this. All the different things that Paul says. And I want to start by addressing the two views on sex that Paul brings up in this passage. As well as the very beginning of the next passage, chapter 7. There are two predominant views on sex that were true of the time period that Jesus lived and when he died and when he rose and the time of the apostles as they're planting the church. The first view of sex is what he outlines here in verse 13 where he says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. Here was the view that sex is just like an appetite. So just like when you're hungry, you eat food, when you have sexual desires, you fill those sexual desires. It's superficial, it's just your body, it's just what you do with your body to please yourself. It's, it's no different than being thirsty and having a drink or being hungry and having food. If you have sexual desires, you fulfill them. And the reason that they had this position was widely held in the culture was because the Greeks believed that the body was meaningless. They had this 
huge elevation of the soul and the spirit. That the body was just a vessel for your soul and your spirit. Which makes sense because some of the great philosophy of the world was written during the Greeks. Plato and Aristotle. Socrates. Because your body is meaningless, your soul and your spirit is what is meant to be developed. So, sex is like an appetite. The second view on sex is found in the first verse of chapter 7, the very next chapter, where it says this, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Here was the other view on sex, the exact opposite, that sex is bad, it is dirty, and it is unnecessary unless you're looking to have children. See, there was this idea culturally among typically the, the religious and among people that were striving to be holy or different from everybody else that if you're really a serious person, if you're a holy person, if you're a righteous person, then sexual desires should be completely removed. You should cast them aside. They're dirty. They're unnecessary. They're bad. It's interesting as I was thinking about this that these views were held thousands of years ago in a culture very different from ours, and yet I would argue that these are the predominant views on sex today. That in many circles you have a view that at least treats or makes you feel as if sex is dirty and bad and unnecessary unless you're looking to have children. And then in other arenas, and the predominant view in culture is that sex is just, it's like an appetite. It's what you do with your body is just your body. It's interesting that those views are still prevalent today. In fact, I think that these views have caused a lot of people that were raised in the church or raised in Christian circles to begin, to begin the process of what's called now deconstructing your faith. So let me give you an example. If you were raised in an environment, in a church environment, where the first view of sex was uh, promoted or tolerated because the church had kind of married the spirit of the, of the culture, has kind of joined in with the sexual revolution that we know is very clear in our society. And so it was taught that just like sex is sex and it's, it's kind of meaningless. It's just like an appetite. I think many people, and I've had many conversations with people that have deconstructed their faith or have treated their Christian faith like it really doesn't matter. There's nothing attractive about it because they were raised in an environment where the church didn't look any different from the culture. And it kind of felt like, you know, what's the difference here? You, you're changing things that I, I very clearly read. Like if I read 1 Corinthians, something is being prohibited there. And, and I really believe this, and I hope this is an encouragement to you. I think that when people are strong on their convictions, but they're big in love and grace, and they stand on truth like ten toes down, it's attractive. You may disagree with people's convictions, but when people stand on conviction with love, there's, it's appealing. Now, other people, and maybe this is something that relates with you, maybe you were raised in an environment in a church world where sex was treated as dirty or bad or shameful because the, the leadership or the pastors were thinking about how do we modify the behavior of young people and, and make sure that they're pure. And so we're going to teach in such a way that what is felt is that sex is like, you don't talk about it, it's a dirty thing. It's a shameful thing, and I know many people are undoing the trauma of feeling like sex in their bodies is a bad thing. It's a dirty thing. 
I want to tell you this. The biblical view of sex is neither of these. The biblical view of sex is not that it's just an appetite and it's superficial. And it's also not that it's dirty or bad. It's very, very different. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. And we know this because if you dissect this passage, you begin to see what the biblical view of sex is. Paul says this, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Now, when you read that in the English, it's a very vague term. You may be thinking, what is that? Well, it's a very specific word in the Greek, and the Greek word is porneia. That word has a very specific meaning. Paul could have used other words, but this is a very specific word that has a very specific meaning. Here is the very specific definition of the word porneia, flee porneia. It is to have sex with someone that you are not married to. Very clear. Now, the reason that this is important is because Paul is talking to both married people and single people. See, to have sex with someone that you're not married to when you're married is adultery. The Bible is very clear on that. And to have sex with someone you're not married to when you're single is to also be, you know, engaging in porneia, to sexual immorality as Paul defines it here. You may be thinking, I thought you said this, you know, the biblical view was different. This sounds like a lot like the second one. Like sex is dirty, it's bad, and shameful. Not at all, actually. It's not that. The key to the passage is in verse 16. This is the one that maybe jumped out to you when I was reading it. But I want you to help to understand what he's saying. Verse 16 says this. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Now, why is Paul bringing up prostitution here in this passage? It's because in this time period, there are zero adult singles. There are no people that are adults that are single, very few. In fact, if you are single and an adult in this culture, it is overwhelmingly the case that you're probably a prostitute. And so if you are to have sex outside of your marriage or before you're married as an adult, you're most likely sleeping with a prostitute. That's because people got married young. And so Paul is using a culturally relevant example of what porneia looks like in the culture. What does it look like to have sex outside of marriage? It is the most culturally relevant example is to sleep with a prostitute because there were no adult singles. You were married at a young age. And he says something here that he wants us to, to understand. He's pulling this in the context of, you know, porneia and, and sexual immorality as he defines it. He's given the biblical view of sex and he says this, because when two are joined together, they become one flesh. One flesh. Now, now what is Paul saying? Is Paul describing just like a sexual action? No. He's not talking about physical union. He's talking about much more than that. In fact, if you just think about translating it, if he's talking about just physical union, here's what it would sound like Paul is saying. Don't you know that when you're physically united with someone, you're physically united with someone? That doesn't make any sense. Why would you say that? That's like the most Captain Obvious thing of all time. See, flesh in Scripture almost all the time means something specific, which is not your physical skin, 
but your embodied personhood. It is your whole being. God says this, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Does that mean that God's going to pour his spirit upon our skin? No. It means he's going to pour out his spirit upon our whole self, our personhood, all of who we are. And so Paul is saying here, when two are joined together in a sexual act, they become one person. There's an integration of personhood. That sex is an integration of personhood. You see, when you understand this, you realize that Paul is not devaluing sex. In fact, he's elevating it way above the cultural standard. It's not dirty, it's shameful. It's not superficial, just like an appetite. It is the integration of personhood. It is two people becoming woven together in all types of ways. You see, what Paul is bringing up here is that the biblical view of sex, the vision that God has given us for sex, it is that it is a full giving of yourself to another. All of who you are, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, your spirit, all of who you are is being integrated with the other person. You're becoming one flesh. And because I know that I have the room here on this topic. Some of you are like, this is my first Sunday. Is, is, is this normal? Johnny forgot to tell you, we have a, a slogan here called Stick Six. It means come back next week. It will be on communication. <laughs> Pastor Tim Keller, who recently passed away, I'm so grateful for his ministry and life. He has a million amazing quotes. But this one quote I wanted to bring up to you on this topic he says this about the biblical view of sex. You must not have physical oneness without whole life oneness. See, that, that's what Paul is getting at. To treat sex superficially like it's just an appetite that you fill when you're hungry or that it's shameful and dirty is not God's view of sex. It, it doesn't help you to understand that sex is actually a gift given by God that has great power. In fact, it's so powerful that it integrates your personhood with the other person, where the two become one. Heart, mind, soul, spirit, being, strength, all fused together. That your sexual story, when it is woven with someone else, is the integration of every other part of your story. You're not meant to have physical oneness without whole life oneness. Because there you have a commitment shaping, deepening, safe environment for the integration of your person to be fused and woven with another. It is a high, high view of sex. And yet we live in a society where it is completely acceptable just to treat sex superficially and to give of yourself as you see fit to fill your appetite. And Paul is saying here that, that sex isn't simply meant for physical pleasure. It's meant to nurture your soul. Think about the beauty and the value of which God's vision for sex is. That it is meant to build you emotionally connected to another person in a wholly unique way. It is meant to bind your mind and your thoughts with the other person where there's a deep appreciation and understanding for each other. 
It is meant to create an environment of safety and freedom and vulnerability because you know that you're loved and seen. God's view of sex is higher than ours. For it's a gift he's given us and it has great power. See, if, if you hold to a view of sex that is dirty or unnecessary, not really that important, then you're going to create unnecessary barriers in your marriage covenant because it's a powerful gift that God has given to bring the integration of personhood. And if you view sex as, you know, not a big deal and just like fulfilling your appetite, it's like playing with fire because you know in your core that it is more than that. It is much more than that. And people discover that in relationship for when you engage in sex outside of a marriage covenant, you know that the relationship immediately changes. Everything's different. There's a great risk of being harmed and wounded. There's a great openness now feeling disrespected and used. You can sense in your being that there's an integration of personhood, but there's no safety and commitment. There's no loyalty and trust where that can be fostered. It's a place of great risk where great hurt can come from. It's a powerful gift and blessing from God. Notice what Paul says in the second half of verse 18. It's very interesting how he's wording all of this. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So he's saying... Other sins happen outside of yourself, but porneia is actually harming the inside of yourself. Now, there are plenty of other sins that harm your body, like the interior of your body. Substance abuse, unhealthy living, these kind of things harm your body. It's not just outside, it harms you inside. But what Paul is bringing up here is that there's something unique about sex is that it's the integration of personhood. And so it's not just that it's an act that happens outside the body, it's that you're now wounding your personhood, your heart, your mind, your soul, your spirit. The very beauty of the gift is being wounded because it's not used in its proper commitment-forming, soul-nurture way. You know, I, I think... That God's vision for sex is such a high vision that if I diagnose the problem culturally and, and, and within the church for many, the problem that we have around this topic is that we have no vision for sex. No vision. I mean, I want to ask you that question. Do you have a vision for your sexuality? A vision. I don't, think about every other aspect of your life. You have a vision for your finances. You have a vision for your career. You have a vision for your marriage or for your romantic relationship. You have a vision for your friendships. You have a vision for your faith. And if you have no vision, then you have no goals. So if you think about your career, you think about your finances, maybe one of your visions is to retire at some age. Well, if that is your vision, then you're going to build goals to help you get there. If you want to buy a house, can I get an amen? If you want to buy a house... If you want to help your kids pay for college, if you want to buy a new car and you have a vision, then you're going to set up goals to help you get there. 
If you want to grow in your knowledge and understanding of the Bible, if you have a vision for your faith, then you're going to set up goals to help you in that. If you want to have closer friendships, especially here in Miami where it can be difficult to have real connected deep friendships, then you're going to set up goals to help get you to that end. How many have a vision for their sexuality? You see, that's exactly the problem. God has a vision for us. Is it our vision? If you don't have a vision for your sexuality, then what's going to happen is you're just going to be pulled around by whoever's speaking loudest in your ear or whatever immediate need and gratification you have, and you'll have no rooting, you'll have no goals, you'll have no balance. You'll be pulled around and harmed in the process. Proverbs 29 says this, where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And that's true of your sexuality too. You'll perish if you have no vision. Sex is a great gift with great power. It's not an appetite. It's not dirty. God has a high view of sex. It's the integration of personhood meant to exist within the safety and commitment of a marriage. Now, I know my audience. I know that many of you here are single. And many of you that are married have a lot of single friends. Maybe this has had a conversation around this. So I can anticipate the question. Maybe it goes something like this. Great. Okay, so I am supposed to wait. That's like that, you know, Christian phrase, wait until marriage. I'm supposed to wait until I get married. I don't know when that's going to be. To enjoy the soul care and soul nurture of sex. Yes. Yes. But I want you to hear something. And I think that this is what's missing from this conversation often. God's vision for sex is not only elevated, but so is God's vision for your singleness. God has a high view of singleness. In the next chapter, chapter 7, Paul says essentially this. If you're married, great. Don't desire to be single. If you're single, great. Don't be too eager to get married. Christianity is the first religion. It's the first entity to elevate singleness. To give the option to you as a person to choose marriage or choose singleness. And to say that they're both worthy of honor. There's glory found in both paths. The first one, this was shocking because in this culture, as I told you, there was almost no adult singles. Back then, 2,000 years ago in the Greco-Roman culture, there was no individual honor. There was no my individual reputation, my individual success, and my individual accolades. There was none of that. All of who you are, your worth and your dignity was bound up in your family. It was your family name. And so there was a huge pressure to get married and to have your family in its entirety develop and be successful and maintain an image. There was no individuality like we have now. And so Paul is saying that God's view of singleness is the same as the, his view of marriage in terms of honor. Can choose. In fact, Paul, who wrote this, chose to be single. It's amazing. It's amazing. 
Caesar Augustus, just to put this in perspective, Caesar Augustus would fine a woman that was an adult female if she was not married within two years of being divorced or widowed. You get fined. Christianity comes along and says, you want to choose singleness? Or you're single for this season of your life? Great. There's great honor in that. There's actually great joy in that. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying this. God's vision for sex and marriage is a great gift and it provides deep soul care and nurture. And you can live a perfectly fulfilled and beautiful life single without sex. That is something our culture completely rejects. I know that if I did a Twitter poll and I said, I want you to agree or disagree that you can have a perfectly fulfilling, satisfying life and be single and never have sex, it would overwhelmingly be disagreed. And maybe that is what is so hard for you around God's vision of sex. Because you have this elevated view of romance and marriage that your life cannot be successful and satisfying and full of joy unless you're married. And if you're single, you struggle with that and you battle with that. You don't feel the elevation of your singleness. You don't feel any honor in the season that you're in. It's a great struggle. And I want to say this. If God has given you a desire to be married, continue to praying. I believe that God will answer that desire. Maybe not in your time. But he will. But don't put your singleness aside like it's a second-rate position. It's not. It's deserving of great honor, the same honor of those who are married. And you can have just a fulfilling life. Just as a thriving, flourishing life as someone who's married. And the married couple has sex and you don't. And it does not affect how you can thrive and flourish. I think many people have maybe found a position within those three, and maybe that's you in the room. You feel like, I, I don't believe that sex is dirty and, and bad, and I also don't believe that it's, you know, just like an appetite that you just fill. I, I believe that sex is precious, but I believe that in a committed relationship where there is safety, even before marriage, that you can engage in sexual union because you, you want to integrate your whole self with that person and maybe discover whether or not you want to get married or because you're planning on getting married. Very popular view. Ernest Becker wrote a book that won a Pulitzer Prize called The Denial of Death. And he talks about how we are living in a truly unique society because we're the first truly secular society where a, a large percentage of adults believe that at death it's just extinction. And so because many of us do not have a vision beyond, we don't have an elevated vision of even our own lives, that we live in the moment. We live for now. And it's created a consumerism culture and immediate gratification and compromise to feel as if you are living successfully and vibrantly in the moment. And he says this, there's never been a society where there was an understanding of the insignificance of human life. Catch that. There's never been a society where there was an understanding of the insignificance of human life. Which is why we have devalued the significance of the behavior that brings about life. Sex. And not just life in terms of children. It brings about life to the soul. 
and yet we've devalued it because we live in the moment. And so we, you know, make compromises, we focus on immediate gratification, we want to live and feel in the now. And what he talks about in this book is that so much of our striving is to try to rediscover our life and get our life back. And I really believe what's happened for us and our vision for sex as, as a culture and as a people, and maybe this resonates with you, is that sex has lost its life. The life that God gave it to be the integration of personhood, to nurture your soul, to bind you together with someone deeply within a marriage covenant and commitment that is till death do you part. It's lost its life. And so what we've done, because we've devalued it and sex has lost its life, is we begin to peddle and pedestal marriage and romance. The most important thing in life is marriage and romance. And so because that's what we're reading and what we're feeling, what culture is saying, then sex has become, yeah, it's not dirty, it's not bad, and it's also not an appetite, but it is a tool that I can use to further romance and maybe get married. Because we put romance and marriage on this pedestal. I went back on Netflix in 2022 and I said, what are the top eight reality TV shows? Ready? Number one. Does anyone know what it is? Number one. Love is Blind. I heard it. Yes. Love is Blind. Dating show. Number two. I love what number two is. Alone. Any Alone fans in the room? There's like, yeah, there's like two of us. We, we got it. Alone is where they take men and women, they put them in the wilderness, and they say survive. Amazing show. I'm so happy that's number two. Number three, too hot to handle, dating show. Number four, the ultimatum, marry or move on. Never seen any of these. Number five, there's another great one, is it cake? You know, it's like, is it cake or is it not? Number six, the circle, that's a dating and strategy show. Number seven, selling sunset, real estate. And number eight, married at first sight. Do you catch that? There are three shows in the top eight shows that are not marriage and dating. One of them is, will these people survive or will a bear, a bear kill them? That's one. The second one is, I want to see the most expensive real estate places in the world and just dream that it's going to be my house one day. And then the third is, is it cake? Because, I mean, it's just awesome. Everything else is marriage and romance and soulmate. Here's the thing, guys. I don't know if you know this. We have a romance addiction, an addiction in our culture for romance because we've elevated it. And what's happened is because of that and because we feel that, and I know you feel that, we have made sex not a gift with great power to integrate your personhood with someone within the covenant of marriage. No, no, no. Sex is a tool to further romance so that I might find love and get married. Stanley Hauerwasser, the theologian from Duke, says this. A Christian marriage isn't about whether you're in love. Christian marriage is giving you the practice of fidelity over a lifetime in which you can look back upon the marriage and call it love. You see, God's vision for marriage is also a lofty vision. It's a vision that he calls us to engage in where you, you choose to love another person. You choose to give your whole self to another person, to take vows 
for richer, for poorer, and sicker, if in sickness and health, till death do you part. You're committing yourself to another person that you can never know fully through a dating relationship. You're choosing to love someone, which is a great act of love. And then through the relationship, you look back and you see these feelings of love cultivated and deepened over time. As it gets deeper and richer, and sex is meant to be a gift found within that, to deepen that love. It's God's vision for marriage. But we've taken that and kind of thrown it aside or said, yeah, that's great, but I need to use this gift, God, that you've given as a tool to help me get there. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Trust God's vision. Have a vision for your sexuality. Humble yourself between God who knows best and you in your core know it to be true as well. That sex isn't dirty and it's not bad. It's not just like an appetite that you fill. And it's not a tool. It's a precious, powerful gift that God has given you to be experienced within the bounds of marriage that your relationship might deepen. And in your singleness, do not for a second think that somehow you are in an inferior state. There is so much glory and honor in your singleness, and God wants to use you in profound ways while you're single. The goal of your life and the flourishing of your life is not to get married and have romance and experience sex. It's not. It's a very low view of what God's vision is for your life. It is so far beyond that. And I want to say this. The most important thing for us to understand when we talk about a topic like this is that Paul brings it up back to the Christian hope. If you notice what he says at the very end, I love how he closes this. In the very last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this. This is like the challenge, right? When you, when you think about this topic. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. See, it draws us back to the love of God. He wants you and me to know that the love of God is open. That the love of God is open to you. That's why he says in verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one with him in spirit. And I want you to hear this so clearly. I, neither God, condemn you for any of your past history. God doesn't. I know that there's brokenness and there's wounds and there's all kinds of things around this topic. I know it's true. And God is standing before you and he says, my love is open to you. You were bought with a price. Great example of this is in John chapter 4. We close with this, that Jesus, when he's at the, he goes to this well. And there's a woman there. And she's a Samaritan woman, which is like a rival people group between the Jews and Samaritans. So she's stunned that this Jewish man is going to talk with her. They're alone, and they're exchanging kind of, can I have a cup of water and drinking from the well? And Jesus then says something to her. He says this, the water that I give will become a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. And her response is, I want that water. Like, I mean, I, I come here every day to the well, and I want a water that's going to well up to eternal life, a water that's going to satisfy my soul. Like, if you have that, give me a cup. And Jesus says, okay, go get your husband and come back. All of a sudden, she's downcast. Her 
head is down. And she says, ah, I don't have a husband. And Jesus responds and he says this, I know you don't. You've had five. And the man that you're sleeping with now is not your husband. And you read that and you're like, wait, wait. Is Jesus condemning her for her past and for her mistakes and for her sexual brokenness? Not at all. Because what Jesus then tells her is that he is the one that invites her to have that drink of that living water. He says that I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the living water. He who drinks of me will never thirst again. I am the one that brings that spring of water welling up to eternal life when you consume of my love and my grace and my forgiveness. And she runs off into the town and tells everybody about Jesus. See, he gives her a gift. See, you like the woman in John chapter 4. You can look for the water of life in sex and in romance and marriage. But it will never satisfy the deepest parts of your soul. It won't. But Jesus' love is open to you. Jesus is open to you. Unless you make Jesus your greatest love, the one that you pursue over all others, the other things that you pursue will disappoint. They will break down. They will not satisfy your soul. If you put marriage and romance on a pedestal, it will not satisfy the deepest parts of your soul. If you treat sex like it's just a tool or it's something that you can use, then you'll elevate your own attractiveness and sexual experiences and believe that you just take a sip of this pleasure that it will help, but it will not. It will make you only more thirsty. I want you to hear this. You may struggle to follow God's vision for sex. You may. You may have past shame associated with sex and your sexuality. You may battle deeply with the value and honor of your singleness. You may need repair in your marriage. There is grace. You see, you may have devalued the gift of sex in your life, but Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus wants to bring life back to you. He wants to bring life back to you, redemption back to you, healing back to you, vision back to you. He wants you to see who he is. You see, if you want intimacy in your relationship with God, it demands all of who you are. To have a relationship with Jesus is an all-in venture. It is Jesus, I love you with all of my heart, with all of my mind, with all of my strength, with all my soul, with all my spirit. It is all of me, Jesus. I love all of you. I give you all of me. You can't say, God, I'm going to give you all of me on Sunday, but Monday through Friday I can give myself to other things. Now we battle with that and we struggle to give our things to other people and other experiences and other visions. But then God calls us back by his grace and it's the importance of gathering on an evening like this to be called back to the love of God and say, God, you have all of me. You ask of all of me. In fact, God doesn't just demand all of you. He proves that he was one to give all of himself for you. Remember what Paul said? Do you not remember that you were bought with a price? When Jesus died, did he die completely or partially? He gave all of himself. 
his whole life so that your whole life might be redeemed and forgiven and reconciled in him. My charge to you, friends, is to make Jesus your one true love. Above romance, above marriage, above your singleness, above your sexuality. Make Jesus your one true love. He is the living water that will satisfy your soul. And if you have had a sip, just a sip of the love that he offers, you know it to be true. Allow him to call you back with his love and bring life again to you. Have a vision for your life and your sexuality. Find honor in your singleness. Hold God's high view of sexuality. Don't devalue it. Because there, there is great grace and great power. Amen.